It's number one with a Bullard, the audio edition. I'm Gabe Bullard. Today's episode, How to Watch 90s Movies. You probably noticed this episode is a lot longer than all the other ones. That's because it's a different type of episode. It's an interview. I talked with the hosts of the podcast Hit Factory, Aaron Casillas and Carly Gomes. I like what they do. They discuss a different movie from the 90s every episode. And I realize that when I say 90s movie podcast, it might sound retro, what a time to be alive, or maybe it sounds like a get a load of this type of show where they just goof on old movies, but that's not it. The conversations are nuanced and smart in a way that I think you have to be when you're looking at any relic from the past. And that's especially true with 90s movies, which are so surrounded by nostalgia that it can be difficult to even start to reconsider them through any other lens. So many people have deep emotional ties to the way these movies even look. But there's a lot to talk about that isn't nostalgia. Movies are products of their time. They speak to the values and politics of an era. And looking at them in retrospect can show us not only how things were, but how things have changed. That's one reason I like the show. I spend so much time here writing about nostalgia and thinking about how we think about the past that I love to see how other people do it. I'm glad Carly and Aaron took the time to talk. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm starting it with Aaron's first answer. He's explaining how he and Carly came to start the podcast after meeting and bonding over discussions of movies. Over the course of our conversations, we sort of deduced that the 1990s was the last time that we could really recall that movies, broadly speaking, were good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, like like there there are still great movies being made all the time, but that like, you know, you could approach pretty much like any movie in the 1990s, even kind of like the the most sort of like middlingly received, uh, you know, mid-budget kind of thriller or kind of adult drama and find that there was an artistry and a care and a craftsmanship to it that seemed to steadily decline over the course of the next like 20, 25 years uh, of, of moviedom. One of the primary impetuses was a one Tom Cruise, <laughs> specifically <laughs> um, his movie, The Firm, because Aaron and I had talked about it um, several times at length. And I had always said to him, that the movie itself was uh, psychotically white uh, in many ways. And that there was just like a lot going on, um, not just uh, sort of politically within the film and how it relates to the politics of the time, um, but also how that film is related to the rest of Tom Cruise's career. That movie is the thing that kind of spurred us on to actually um, record a conversation about it because we felt like there was a lot there. And, um, you know, if you listen to our podcast at all, you know that we are huge fans of Tom Cruise um, and think that he is uh, one of the people saving movies. But I think that the way that the firm sort of relates to the, the whole project of what Hit Factory is, I guess, is that it's a movie that is popular, did pretty well at the box office, featured a, a, a bunch of major stars, um, and also has like a ton of really insidious politics living at the <laughs> core of it. Um, and I think there are a lot of movies like that in the 90s. And it's because it's, it's, a, uh, it's a very politically fraught time, despite the fact or perhaps even because of the fact that the overarching narrative that we were, you know, broadly being fed through media and popular culture is that everything was really great 
And of course, that's not true. Um, and I think that the closer you look at the films of the 90s, you see evidence of that everywhere. Um, and the films themselves are uh, often because it was before digital and all of these other technologies that have changed the way these movies have been shot. They look and they feel different. And so it's easy to be nostalgic for them um, because they, they viscerally uh, sort of inspire uh, a, an old feeling in you simply by way of, of the visuals. That's something I'm interested in in exploring a bit because you know, there's the way that film stock looked in the 90s. There's the way sound mixing was done and everything. And whenever I'm revisiting an older movie, one, I'll go in a lot of times wondering, like, is there something that doesn't hold up? But when something does hold up, I always kind of have this this debate with myself of, do I like it because it's from an era that I have these really warm feelings for? Or do I like it because, because it's just a well-made, well-put-together film? And and I think both the answer could be both quite a bit. Um, but I'm wondering when you're revisiting movies, you know, how do you balance that inherent nostalgia with with making more of like a, a straightforward assessment of the movie? I, I don't know that we have like a concrete sort of formula for addressing that. I, I think it's uh, often about kind of meeting the movie sort of at its own terms, on its own terms. But yeah, I, you know, there there's so many movies from the era that I think do have as as carly mentioned you know like kind of fraught politics like maybe even like ugly politics to them you know things that are uh not just out of fashion but actually like you know like very kind of deeply almost like inspired by like very kind of like hateful perspectives but i also don't know that that necessarily invalidates it as a like cultural work you know i i think that there's something worth investigating there and something worth having a conversation about uh you know uh, one of the things I, I do notice about there's this this sort of like trend with movie analysis in general but especially in the podcast space i think uh when you're looking at movies from kind of a bygone era or a specific decade or a specific kind of like uh time and place that uh has a very sort of topical analysis of the contents of it with a sort of 2020s uh, value set and perspective and it's a sort of checklist of the ways that it either passes based on our worldview and perspective or the way that it fails and i think we try to avoid that we don't want to say oh the the you know sort of gender relations in this movie are kind of gross and regressive and so this movie is bad right like that that feels like a moral judgment rather than like a value judgment of what's actually going on in the text and i, I think that there's always sort of a a material analysis that you can sort of apply to the movies and find out what was going on culturally or like uh what this particular uh, performer this particular filmmaker uh is is doing during an era and trying to say or or you know avoiding saying the question you ask gabe is i think the question that guides every conversation we have and it's a really important one i think for anyone consuming media and falling um prey to the trap of nostalgia which is like is this thing actually good or is it just good because i you know um I feel fondly about it because of when I first saw it or experienced it. 
Um, and I think it's okay to admit like that something can be good because of the latter reason. Like we have personal experiences with art and media that often inform our perspective, regardless of like sort of an objective valuation of the thing. And I think that's important to acknowledge, but also understand that it is a separate thing from like, is this, is this thing good? And I don't think we actually ever ask like the question, is this movie good? But more just try to understand like, what is this movie about and what was informing it? And, you know, over the course of that, even in the films where I feel like I might've gone in being like, I don't know, man, like what's the one with Ray Liotta when he's, um, he's like in a jungle prison. Uh, no escape. No escape. Movie. <laughs> it's like a totally wild movie. Like it's not like the best, but over the course of the conversation we had with our good friend Owen Morowitz about this film, I realized like there was so much interesting stuff going on in the film and there were so many details about it that I loved that like I did end up on the side of like thinking the movie was really excellent, even though it's not, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And the last thing I'll say is um, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that like objectively speaking, movies were just better in the nineties. <laughs> and I say that, and I say that there's a material analysis coming here. Yeah. Um, I say that because the, the sort of churn of late capitalism and, and the, the flattening of, of so much art and media over the course of the last 30 years um, through the process of commodification um, and really extensive commodification over the last 30 years has changed the landscape of what films are. Um, and they are more often than not now content rather than stories. They are signifiers of ideas or in often, ca often cases of ideologies um, rather than stories and narratives con that contain and explore ideologies themselves. And that has changed the quality of films by and large. There are still plenty of good movies being made. Um, so I think it is also okay to say like movies in the nineties, objectively speaking, were better because we were at a different stage in this, in this, uh, um, you know, grind of neoliberal capitalism then. Um, and that's not to say that like all the movies are good, but the products that were being made, the art that was being made, um, was necessarily different than the art that's being made now. You know, doing these these explorations of nostalgia, there's sort of always this argument of, of the past versus the present, of, you know, comparing one thing to another. And it's really hard to avoid, I think, because the durability of the past is the reason why these things have lasted. And I'm thinking, like, of material objects even, of, you know, going into, like, an antique store or a thrift mm -hmm. store or something, like, mm -hmm. something that's 30 years old now just has a different sort of quality to it than something than something made today and and as i you know work on writing critiques and everything i always try to to not say like it's better because it's old but it's better because just like you were saying like all these other factors contribute to a higher quality product and i think that's the case with uh with film i think that's the case with a lot of material goods too of just yes. you know yes. things were made differently there is a material reason why these things look and feel this way and there is a particular socio-political climate and relationship of art and capital 
that made things as a whole just uh better more adventurous in spirit and like people could take a little bit more risk i think that's the thing that like the the 90s kind of convey more than anything and why we're so drawn to it is that there feels like an abundance of risk taking still which is something that current kind of cultural output and current content or films seems relatively devoid of like comparatively speaking the decline that you're talking about gabe though i think is a direct result of the political climate that really came to full-throated fruition in the 90s. So often when we're looking at these films, um, it's really easy for us to draw direct lines to things that are happening today, conversations that are happening today, to a conversation that, you know, surrounded a film. Um, Or like, you know, if we think about just sort of outside of movies, but what was happening politically is this sort of, you know, new kind of Democrat in the likes of Bill Clinton, Mm -hmm. where promises were made based on merit and, you know, tech was going to be the thing that saved us. And it was all about like, you earn as much as you learn. And so there was this emphasis on effort. And it was this repackaging of like, American pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And it was all there to ostensibly maintain the same structures of power that had been established in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and not really undo anything that a president like Reagan had done, um, but just sort of repackage it uh, and mask it as a kind of kinder, gentler, more prestigious, but also less like Wall Street, like fat cat type of American politics. And I think that that backdrop in the 90s is directly responsible for the place that we are in now. And oftentimes the things that come up in films that reflect a really intense explosion of the police state post Rodney King and with the 94 crime bill and all of these other things, like we are still feeling the ripple effects of, of those things. Um, and you can look at a movie like Speed and understand why it's really important that Keanu Reeves is a hot, capable Los Angeles police officer who hates the media, hates being filmed, and uh, is working with, you know, a black chief in the film, right? Like all, all of these things start to make sense. And then you see... You see the 2022 iterations of those things um, in, you know, Marvel films and whatever else we happen to be looking at. I think that sort of assessment can become additionally fraught when when you bring the nostalgia element into it, because the attachment that you get that you become nostalgic for can be so strong if something is, you know, such a fundamental part of your uh, of your childhood and then to critique them is to question something fundamental about yourself versus, mm-hmm. you know, if you really think about it, you can think about, well, I was a different person at one point. I've changed over these ways, but something about movies and media from that from that time I, I think sometimes there can be a hesitancy toward giving that sort of assessment to. Um, and I wonder how, how you approach that, knowing sort of how ingrained certain uh, certain elements or certain films might be might be in culture. An argument that comes up a lot in conversations that we have, uh, both for the podcast and just like 
in life is this idea that the moralizing of media today is an exercise that is born out of really being bereft of any other rights or any other sort of material agency as subjects under late capitalism, right? Like the last thing we're really able to do is consume products, media, content, art, right? That's really the only thing we have freedom to do anymore. And even that is is highly mediated through algorithms and um, and all of these other things. But because that really is this sort of last space of freedom, it is necessarily tied to moral judgments for people. So I think it's really hard for people to to separate their feelings about a film and the moral conversations that the film might be having. And so oftentimes, I think today, there's a tendency to apply really high standards of like moral purity to a piece of media. But then like those same questions and those same like demands for more purity, I see less and less in the places where I feel like it matters more, like with our politicians or like with the legislation that's being put forth or not being put forth or like workers' rights or what have you. And that's not to say that like there aren't people demanding those things. There definitely are. Um, And we've seen, you know, worker power expand in the last few years more than it had in decades. But I think that by and large, your sort of average American understands that things are increasingly bad, even if they can't name why. And so media has become a more dangerous space because in the mind of the general populace, it is one of the last places where, you know, freedom can live and die. And that's a roundabout way of saying, I think that the ache we feel around things that we love being critiqued um, has partly to do with our relationship to those things and the experiences that have come from them. But I also think it has to do with the fact that there's a lot more urgency around media than there used to be. There have always been conversations around like, things are too violent or we can't show this, that, and the other. The studio system had like a a terrible set of standards for what could be in movies and not um, for a very long time. So that conversation is old. But what I think has changed is the audience's participation in uh, this belief that like watching something can corrupt you. I think that is like more a more prevalent belief today than um than it has been in a really long time and i think that it informs a lot of misguided judgments being made on movies that i think have a lot of merit to them even if they are challenging or uncomfortable in many ways yeah i'll just i mean i'll add to that you know like not just you know this almost sort of like germ theory concept of like, you know, contamination when it comes to media consumption, but also like this idea of absolution through like abstaining, you know, like there's this kind of strange idea that like, oh, uh, you know, not watching this 
25 year old movie or uh you know covering my eyes or admonishing this thing publicly means that i am uh you know a, a better person morally or have the right ideology and the right circumstances and, and set of beliefs i mean it's almost a punchline now you know like how many people have this like very uh sort of like uh you know pedestaled sense of moral values and shame everybody for their consumption habits on the internet and then we find out that they're like the lead designer on like the peacekeeper missile at raytheon you know or something like that you know it's just just these like constant contradictions that i don't think anybody is actually above and you know to speak specifically about like the maybe like emotional response you're talking about gabe when it comes to nostalgia um i i think we actually kind of at least I do. Maybe I'm more of the provocateur than Carly is, but I kind of delight a little bit in like uh, kind of poking and prodding at, at people's like sort of long held kind of beliefs. And it's not me trying to be like a contrarian about something. It's me, uh, you know, really, I think, appreciating when you can find like a new angle into something that's sort of universally beloved or, you know, even universally reviled and say like, actually, I think there's merit here in an idea that we're not really concentrating on, you know, sometimes that works in our favor where people are like, yeah, that is a really cool new entry point into that film, into that story, into that kind of performance or idea or, or technique. Uh, and sometimes people just like, you know, we get, get very angry about it. I, <laughs> I've joked before that hit factory is an anti-nostalgia podcast. Um, and I, I don't mean that broadly as in like, we, you know, shame you for it and we're above it we're certainly not um but i think anyone uh who has come to our show in the past or who may in the future thinking that like what we're going to be offering is this neon colored geometric patterns like bright fun like bubblegum and soda idea of like 90s uh is going to be left kind of disappointed by our show there's one way to be anti-nostalgia which would just be to basically like take anything kind of revered through that nostalgic lens and just point out all the ways in which it's bad. Like, here's what's wrong here. Here's what's wrong here. But at that point, you could almost get into like, uh, almost like a, a cinema sin sort of thing of just oh, like, yeah. you know, everything wrong with, you know, Ghostbusters 2 or something like that. Um, and just kind of fall into that trap versus what I think you're describing and what I what I hear in the show, sort of taking that, that other assessment. Um, Nostalgia tends to, I think, smooth out our enjoyment of things into only how we relate to them, and we don't want to change how we relate to them from the way that we did before. Yes, absolutely. And I've also seen a sort of swing of the pendulum in the other direction. I think there's a whole camp of of people who maybe miss some things about art and media that came from the time they grew up in precisely because of that nostalgic sheen that you're talking about. And then I also think that there's like this strange impetus to automatically decry anything that someone might be nostalgic for and also automatically decry like things you yourself have been nostalgic for. I think this is mostly an online phenomenon. I can't speak to like what this looks like in the meat world. But I see a lot of people online really vehemently rejecting the things that they grew up on. Um, and that being a statement of like, 
look how I've evolved. Look at where I am now. Like, I'm a better person because I don't like these things anymore. And, you know, we all need to find our sense of self somehow. So, like, people are going to do what they're going to do. I'm not, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to cramp that style. But I do think that it's interesting that on the one hand, as we march forward on the path that we are currently on with the economic system that we are all living under, there is a futurelessness. And a lot of people understand that even if they can't name it, they feel it. And so the two kind of like paths I've seen are, I don't see a future ahead of me. So I'm really just going to take comfort in the things that came before because that feels safe. Um, And then there is the, I'm rejecting everything that came before because like that stuff is bad and that's why we're where we are today. And not so much of the third path that I think is like, all of those things can be true and let's imagine what the future looks like. Like, let's imagine what an alternative looks like um, that is maybe in conversation with the fact that these things that we have nostalgia for um, can be, you know, both problematic and really important. But I think that's harder to do because of, you know, a a very um, deep-seated capitalist realism that we all exist Uh, exist with daily and that is enforced by the media that we consume it's really hard to imagine what something other than the thing that we're doing right now looks like Um, and so nostalgia is a huge part of that because I think it it feeds our you know sort of receding back into a place that feels safe and warm um, because things are scary now and I also think it feeds a kind of rejection of the past that seems to overlook the lessons that the past can teach us. Yeah, that's a great point. And one thing I'm really interested in is as the content industry became what it is, uh, just how that has sort of started warping the overall sense of of nostalgia. Some of the sociological writing on nostalgia, they find that when there is that sort of sense of futurelessness or sense of you know widespread hopelessness or just frustration with the present is when sort of mass nostalgia can happen. But where I think that that we're hitting a unique place now is just how media saturated our our lives are and how effective nostalgia is as a way of getting of building up whatever metrics are needed for content, whether that's, you know, minutes viewed on Netflix or tickets sold or anything like that. There's this drive to induce this baseline feeling of nostalgia or to let people indulge in that. The thing I worry about always is that maybe we're just getting caught in this loop where, you know, eventually is every movie going to be like, uh, like the last Spider-Man movie where they bring back, you know, Tobey Maguire, or is it going to be like the latest Ghostbusters movie, which is, um, you know, treating the original as like the sacred text, like, are we just getting to a point where everything becomes a reference to something else, not to critique it, but just to evoke the sort of like warm feeling that that people have? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a concern that we uh, share and kind of, you know, explore on the show in certain ways. Every so often, we'll step into you know, the the 21st century and our our current context and talk about it because a lot of these films and, you know, pieces of media that we are talking about on Hit Factory uh, have very recent kind of like reboots, updates, spinoffs, things happening all the time. And 
it does feel like it's just like this kind of constant feedback loop. And, and I think the kind of like ephemerality of the things that are being made today is on, on its fullest display in those kinds of products, right? It is a, a baseline recognition, you know, like the, I guess like colloquial and simple way is like, you know, like see a thing and clap, right? Like you, like you, you, you have like a object identification and and a familiarity with something and you're meant to cheer and you're meant to be excited because they're giving you that thing again that you love so much. There's still people who are interrogating that, you know, God, God bless her. Like Lana Wachowski is someone who is still doing that. We, we actually stepped into, you know, the, the, 2020s and and did a, an episode last year around this time on the matrix resurrections because we we love the matrix so much as as a mm-hmm. you know piece of media and there it was there was a a reboot a rehash a third sequel to something that was about the recurring trap of nostalgia and about the the ways in which like pattern recognition is actually kind of a poison it keeps us trapped in place how like our new sort of matrix and imprisonment is just like our own self-contained expressions of like the thing we think we need and want over and over again that keeps us from actually like feeling some sense of uh, liberation or self-actualization so it's it's not the current landscape's not totally devoid of like an exploration at like the meta level of that phenomenon but by and large, and I think you can see it in a lot of the kind of angry response to that movie specifically, uh, by and large, people don't want it. They're rejecting it. What they actually are looking for is that kind of just recognition. But I, I think that there is, I think that there are plenty of people who desire something deeper, want want some, like want us to make our own news stories that, uh, that, that create meaningful and lasting impact. Because that's, it goes back to the thing you mentioned earlier, Gabe, you know, the, sort of like just like material sturdiness of a thing and that can't really happen when all you're doing is making something cynically for people to shell out lots of money for for the for the quickest and and biggest return on investment based on like you know the the sugar-coated like junk food kind of process of this thing yeah it's just it won't endure you know there's it's it's not a center that's going to hold i don't think i think Mm -hmm. the insistence on nostalgia and the constant sort of barrage of things that have come before is a direct result of a completely unfettered market for the last, you know, however many decades in this country, in the sense that market forces require a level of certainty and less risk-taking, just economically speaking, than what we could do 30, 40 years ago. And and the, the best way to sort of actualize that is in the form of a product that we know people already love. But I also think it's really important to understand nostalgia as a new market that itself has emerged. One of the things that I talk about a lot with friends and on the show is the way that every sort of corner of our lives has become commodified in some way, um, including conversations with friends, right? Like, of course, they are going to make it cost money for you to be on a platform and talk with your friend. That is a marketable space, um, or rather, it is a it is itself a market, um, and it is a monetizable space, so it will be monetized. Um, 
And even something as abstract as nostalgia has itself become a market and a monetizable space. Why not commodify this yearning that we have for things that are certain, for things that make us feel good, for things that we've experienced before? And and why not exploit that? Lastly, I'll say nostalgia and its sort of um, manifestation in commodified form today is a direct result of capitalist realism. It is a direct result of this inability to consider and imagine an alternative. Um, And we often see that when people are presented with an alternative, something that isn't familiar to them, they wholly reject it. Um, And that's, you know, years and years of socialized uh, acquiescence to the system that we all have um, in us. And I think that's why a movie like Matrix Resurrections is as divisive as it is, um, because so many people wanted a certain thing from Lana Wachowski. She knew that and she gave them very much not that thing. And instead of saying like, oh, she's giving us this other thing that a Matrix movie could be. A lot of people felt, no, this is what a Matrix movie is supposed to be. And you didn't give me that thing. Failing to ask the question of why she didn't, uh, or if it's even possible that we can decide what a Matrix movie is supposed to be. Nostalgia is important because it is a source of comfort. And I think that is important right now. Um, But I also think that we should be uh, really observant of the ways that that feeling is being exploited and and push past that like need for comfort and try to engage with and understand things that feel unfamiliar and different. And the more we do that, I think the better suited we are as people to make something different than this thing that we're all currently dying under. I like the the Matrix Resurrections comparison there. One thing I really loved about uh, about that movie was it critiqued nostalgia, but I think it also got nostalgia right in a lot of ways in we're being sold nostalgia, but just how, how flimsy and cheap it is even. Uh, you know, what might make somebody want to watch an older movie to get that nostalgic feeling is the feeling of seeing that movie, the feeling of watching that movie. And a lot of times what I think we're we're given is a reference to it, a passing reference, mm-hmm. an image, you know, it's uh, I think there's a great comparison to be made between the last Ghostbusters movie and and the latest Matrix movie, yeah. because one is sort of full of Easter eggs to evoke something, but doesn't bring back the feeling of seeing Ghostbusters for the first time, which was a zany comedy movie. <laughs> and, yes. you yeah. know, and then they make this sequel that's sort of very very different and it it doesn't evoke the feeling of seeing the first ghostbusters it evokes recognition of certain things and makes you feel right and good and safe for liking it and versus watching the matrix resurrections i think there were moments where it's like you know it is alluding to the earlier movies but also it's something different it's something new and it does start to generate that feeling of watching the matrix again and and kind of gets it without hitting necessarily the same story beats without putting in you know obvious references here and there that are just going to you know 
hit that bit of pattern recognition and then all of a sudden it's like oh great i i'm satisfied you know there's this reference to 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 this element that i used to like nostalgic can and should be this comfort but it's also a very private thing you know it, it's a it's a private emotion that that can be triggered or that we can sort of generate ourselves in certain ways but when we're just kind of bombarded with this very surface level flimsy element of it it i feel like it starts throwing off our 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 sensors to a degree where it's like we want that deeper engagement we want that deeper feeling and and we're not getting it it's sort of you know like wanting a full meal and getting something that kind of tastes a little bit like one element of a meal and and then you're just going to be dissatisfied yes I, i worry that we're sort of really building on this idea of shorter and shorter and shorter term pleasure that leads to sort of no larger meaningful statement no larger reassessment of something yeah i mean the cycles are getting shorter for sure and like with everything uh, as we mentioned like the the cheap inexpensive version that will yield the highest return is winning out um and i mean it's interesting to see that you know just as carly's mentioned a couple times is like a a symptom of late capitalism and everything, right? It's why we have fast fashion. It's why we have a different apartment complex or bridge that collapses every other week in, you know, some like rural area or, you know, like new development property in like Miami or something. And likewise with our media, likewise with the stuff that we're producing, right? It's, it needs to be cheap, fast, efficient, get the most eyes, get the most minutes, you know, like needs the most pull on our attention for like the the moment that it's there and and available to you right at that moment uh and then who cares about it you know in six months in a year in 10 years in 20 years those things don't matter anymore we're on to the next thing um and i and i think that it is breeding a certain level of like incuriousness in in terms of our uh, engagement with art and our engagement with like media uh, broadly and in general, you know, like you, uh, you do see like a really kind of like negative reaction and rejection of of new stuff, uh, even in and especially in those kind of nostalgia properties, right? Like uh, Ryan Johnson for a lot of people will be, uh, you know, like someone they hate for the rest of their lives because of his movie, the last Jedi, which I think is pretty good and does interesting things with star Wars. Uh, and you know, but, but, but he ruined our childhood and, and it's the same thing that, you know, Spielberg did with the fourth Indiana Jones. It's the same thing that Lana Wachowski did with the new matrix movie. They, they ruined our childhoods. They, they destroyed uh, this thing because what we really want is just like the spoon feeding of, the objects and the pattern recognition of the thing that feels familiar and makes me happy. Uh, but it's junk food. And I think that it's like the unwillingness to engage with new ideas, even within the context of something that's already relatively familiar and a pretty sure bet for you because it has characters and settings and ideas and concepts that you're familiar with just means that there's even uh, less of that willingness to explore something that is a, completely new creation uh you know and and uh i don't know there's there's this weird kind of like balkanizing effect i guess i'll call it that that has where you've got people who are like so deep in their like kind of holes of of just the ip kind of products and the marvel products and the dc stuff and the star wars stuff and just like in this endless cycle of getting regurgitated that same thing uh and then you've got the people who are like more you know kind of about like art stuff and they're seen as 
pretentious and you know arrogant or whatever by those people i, I don't know it's just it, it never feels like any of those people connect it feels like it's almost impossible to make like a wholly populist thing anymore that like will be original and unique and interesting and satisfy a lot of the different needs of all of those viewers and those different kind of points well it's because we don't have anything materially supporting and connecting us all we have really are these sort of consumer tribes that we're a part of um and they're becoming more and more niche particularly as we um spend more of our time online it's easier to find a smaller cohort of these people that like this specific thing and then then there's everyone else but outside of those you know mediated experiences online we don't have we don't have material experiences connecting us across different consumer habits and tribes and classes and so i think that's why people are um it's easier to engage with those cheaper sort of flimsier things and I'll just say, Gabe, I love love what you said about the Matrix Resurrections movie. You made me realize that like there's this sort of nostalgia that is just blind recognition, and then there's nostalgia that can be generative. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of my my writing and research and everything and and approach to this has come out of constantly having a battle with myself over being nostalgic for certain times and it's you know even diving into some of the sociological writing or uh psychological studies on nostalgia and everything i also realized like oh i'm very much in a place in my life where i'm more prone to be nostalgic like i can kind of see like oh yeah there are certain points where like you're going to be nostalgic there are certain points that you'll be more nostalgic for in your life just based on you know what we know about uh about how our memories work and everything. And I'm sort of always grappling with that, that idea whenever I think like, I wish things were maybe a little bit more like this, like they used to be. And I, but I don't want to reject nostalgia outright because I do think there is something that can be learned, something that can be brought back from the past rather than just sort of a good feeling or rather than just sort of, you know, an older way of doing things. I think it's a challenge that, you know, that no one will be up for if we're just sort of constantly consuming junk food necessarily but this challenge of kind of going back into the past deciding you know what does hold up what should have been lost and what can sort of be a guide for the future i think there is that sort of benefit to nostalgia beyond the personal feeling of of warmth that can lead to seeing you know okay how was this done how could this be made again how could what made the first matrix so effective and how could you do it without just remaking it like sort of really peeling it back and i did like resurrections for for that point because it seemed like one of the only sort of legacy sequels that was willing to ask that question rather than just say what did people like and how do we give it to them yeah yeah there's a um a really great piece by a friend of ours named aaron thorpe on his Substack called space and light and the piece is called uh, What was, Might Have Been. I think it's What Might Have Been. What Might Have Been. He writes He writes about a lot of things. He writes uh, specifically about nostalgia and the sort of trap of it. But towards the end of his piece, he talks a lot about um, something I think that you're getting at here, Gabe, which is that a sort of outright rejection of popular culture um, which now is very much taking the form of 
steeping itself in nostalgia, but nostalgia like for certain things, for certain people. Let's acknowledge that too. Mm -hmm. There's an argument that Aaron makes that I think is really important, which is that you, you cannot outright reject what happens on the plane of popular culture and dominant structures of, of power. Because even within dominant culture, there are things that emerge that are resistant. And there are things that emerge that acquiesce. And there's this constant push-pull of, of giving in and, uh, and resisting, even within dominant popular culture. And so the, the point that Aaron makes at the end of his piece is that you know, we should pay attention to what's happening on this plane of popular culture, particularly within uh, the space of nostalgia, because there are interesting conversations to be had and there are ways to to recognize resistance that then become subsumed into dominant culture. But those are tensions we should we should play with and exploit if we want to make something new. And I think you're saying the same thing, which is like to dismiss things that are nostalgic uh, or just the idea of a nostalgia wholeheartedly simply because it has come to dominate popular culture and a lot of the things that are being created as products for us to consume is, is dismissing opportunities to, to find areas of, of, generation and and creation and that i think is a more interesting way to engage with products of nostalgia um, and simply the idea of nostalgia at the feeling of nostalgia than wholeheartedly saying yes it's good or saying you know rejecting it completely looking for like a modern parallel to sort of the mass nostalgia now, I think you see it in in the 70s. There was everything from Happy Days and Grease and American Hot Wax, but then there was also Chinatown and The Sting and sort of this revisiting of the 30s. And though it's often attributed to The Sting, it was a, a rising phenomenon already. There was this big ragtime revival going on and it sort of seeped into popular music. And there wasn't a ton of, of sociological writing on nostalgia, but those who were writing were pointing out this comes you know, after Watergate, it comes after yeah. uh, everything that had happened in the 60s and also comes at a time of of television reaching more homes than ever. It's not only that society was kind of in an upheaval, it's that we were sort of constantly hit with the message. It was inescapable that that things were going in a direction that was unfamiliar. There's just so much that had happened politically and socially in those years. But then the 70s ends with you know, the Reagan revolution, the um, ironically, the make America great again campaign slogan sort of having its, its use there in the 80 campaign. And, and in trying to draw that parallel, it seems like, you know, are we heading for, or are we in the middle of something kind of similar now, this idea of all these things might induce mass nostalgia. And one of those things is consuming media that tells us of, of what's going on. And instead of, sort of facing that change and and grappling with it and trying to figure out, you know, what elements of the past do we keep? How do we build up after this? Is there just going to be sort of that continued regression into nostalgic? In the television force in the 70s and the internet force today, the thing that is pushing us to be more and more nostalgic by delivering these messages is also the thing that is 
inducing the cheapest possible feelings of mm-hmm. nostalgia. Yes. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's a very fascinating kind of relationship. And I think it's why we're so intent on bringing in the political valence into our uh, analysis of a film, which is that like, the art that is being made and the kind of art that endures or, you know, is popular during an era is directly influenced by the material conditions of the moment, right? And and as weird as it is to say, like, material prosperity in the 90s gave root to a very interesting thread in the back half of the decade of questioning the nature of that material comfort and prosperity and whether this could possibly be it. Could this really be the sort of apex of our evolution as a society, as a culture, as humanity? And why does it feel so empty? Uh, you know, and, and you think about the, the 70s too, like you said, a time of like, you know, deep political unrest. There are certainly movies that probably did financially, commercially a lot better than, uh, you know, uh, Pakula's Paranoia Trilogy or, or Coppola's The Conversation or, you know, the Lumet films or Friedkin's movies from the late 70s. But those are the films to me that endure because they tap into like sort of the nerve center of the unrest of the moment. And I think that like we probably won't know about our current moment what endures until we get far enough away from it that we like think about it. You know, I, I feel confident right now saying that something like, uh, you know, Uncut Gems, the Softy Brothers movie, uh, will probably be better regarded in 20 years than say like knives out sorry ryan johnson i already praised you i have to ding you a little bit too right like those two things are just going to be i think seen a little bit differently when we get far enough away from it and i think it's also you know probably like it would be arrogant to try to anticipate or predict what our material and sociopolitical reality will look like you know even five ten years from now um all that's certain is that it will change, right? It, it, it could be a lot, could get a lot worse, but out of that, uh, you know, kind of descent, out of that kind of chaos, out of that cacophony of rage that will probably eventually boil over on on both sides, you know, uh, there is something new likely awaiting us in terms of our reality and the way that we see culture the way that culture is shaped around it and the way that art is produced within that context will also i think be the deciding factor about what movies from now live on and and what things look like from it so yeah you know we've talked a lot about you know this kind of like endless cycle and it feels like this sort of like endless cycle and loop of blind empty no calorie or thousand calorie i guess junk food nostalgia but it will shift at some point and and I think that is kind of, you know, the the thing that I sort of hold out, you know, my optimism for is like, oh, at, at the point that this changes, like there will be like a new paradigm and there will be a different way to look at art and maybe still definitely still worthy cultural products coming out of that. If we're sticking with the junk food metaphor, I think the way that I look at it is like I can eat a whole bag of chips and like I will reach a saturation point (laughs) at a certain point where I'm like (laughs) I need something green I need a glass of water you know like I need nourishment and I think that these you know these cheap offerings this uh you know short-term high which is really all any of us are being offered anymore um 
because we're not being offered anything material or substantive. Um, we're getting these, you know, short-term media highs of, of consumerism. That is going to not be enough at a certain point. And I do feel like, you know, people will get sick of, of those, of that junk food and crave something more nourishing and fulfilling. And what I, what I sort of rest my confidence on when it comes to that is just the nature of humans, not the nature of humans under capitalism, but the nature of human beings outside of this system. We are social animals. We are deeply curious and have a desire to connect with others. And we love in ways that most other things don't. And I think those are the things that feed us the most. And at a certain point, the diet of simple recognition of a thing that I know that makes me feel good is is going to be debilitating enough for us to realize that we need something else and we need something more substantial. And I think there are, of course, going to be people who who don't ever come to that realization. But I do think it will get bad enough and we will be malnourished enough um, that enough people will will start to reach for something more substantial. And that's what I think is going to come out of this. But I think that in the meantime, we're going to have a lot more crap that we need to wade through. <laughs> um, and it's conversations like these, Gabe, that I, I really appreciate because it's important for us to understand our relationship to that churn um, and how we participate in it and how we can um, also separate ourselves from it, but also acknowledge that like it is okay to just be like, I don't want to fucking think. I just want to watch a thing that makes me feel good that's okay. Like, I don't, I don't, um, I think that's part of survival right now. Um, I'm, I'm currently grieving the loss of my father. And I will tell you that like, on top of, you know, material precarity and uncertainty about our future at a, at a global scale, I also am personally feeling like very uncertain about my future. And so there are days when I just like, want to put on a show that I loved, like Friends and or Seinfeld and be like, I'm going to just swim around in this and this is what I need. Um, there's a, there's a, a palliative role that I think nostalgia plays, but I think that, I think that we need to use that sparingly to give us, you know, strength to move forward rather than have it be our entire existence. That's Carly Gomes and Aaron Casillas. The name of their podcast is Hit Factory. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'll link to a few places to find it and to their Patreon over on the newsletter. You can get that newsletter at GabeBullard.com. Thank you to Linda Golden for editing it. And if you haven't subscribed already, maybe consider subscribing. If you have subscribed, maybe consider telling a friend. That would be great. Either way, I appreciate that you're here, and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks.